Andrea Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to a special fifth anniversary mashup of T4C. T4C launched way back in August 2018. And over the years, I've interviewed some absolutely amazing 20-somethings who are thriving in their careers. So I thought you might enjoy hearing from some of the very best career advice that a bunch of them have offered T4C listeners over the last five years, considering that not long ago, they were exactly in your shoes. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guests include, in order of their appearance, Jose Castaneda. He was the communications manager for the Information Technology Industry Council, or ITI. That's the trade association for the tech sector. Today, Jose is the policy communications manager at Google. Kaylee Froci was an associate engineer at Harley-Davidson Motor Company. Today, she's a mechanical engineer at Virgin Orbit, a space launch company. Ladon Davia was the founder of BIA, a meta search engine and employee matching platform. Today, she is the CEO of Friends of Normie, which creates safe products and toys that your animals will love. Lauren Bose Hayes was a threat intelligence analyst at Facebook. Today, she is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, a senior advisor for technology and innovation at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and a founding fellow at Integrity Institute. Liza Goodspeed started off at the consulting giant Accenture as a senior strategy analyst, and today she is a growth strategy manager also at Accenture. Madeline Rose was a senior global advocacy advisor at Mercy Corps, a global humanitarian and development NGO. Today, she is an interim deputy executive director at Pacific Environment, a nonprofit dedicated to tackling the climate crisis. Marie Apple was a senior manager of statewide analytics at the Commit Partnership. And today, she is the executive director at Groundwork DFW. That's a company specializing in community growth and engagement through data analysis. Brothers Mark and Michael Guberte 
Michael Guberte is the founder of MichaelGuberte.com and is a digital market strategist, while his brother Mike Guberte is a freelance writer focusing on finance at U.S. News & World Report. Margaret Richardson is the chief of staff and director of DevEx, a media platform for the global development community. Mark Metry is a serial entrepreneur who was the founder of VU Dream, and he was also the host of the Humans 2.0 podcast. Today, he is a top 10 voice on LinkedIn on mental health, as well as a certified nutrition coach. And finally, Zane Homsey worked on business ops and data science at LinkedIn. Today, he's still at LinkedIn, but he is a product manager where he focuses on various applications of artificial intelligence for consumer and user support. Could you give us an example or a moment when you had, whether it was a challenging boss, difficult colleague or colleagues, or other moments maybe where you felt completely overwhelmed and had to dig deep in order to get to the other side? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because it's not always rainbows and butterflies. When I was at, um, I was jockeying for a um, job at one of my internships. At the end of the internship, there was going to be one person that got the job. There were, I think, six of us vying for it. I ended up not getting it. I didn't have something lined up afterwards. And so I had moved to Washington on my belief that I could, you know, just make it here. And I, I deferred graduate school for a year. And so I found myself then being unemployed. And I just didn't think that would happen. I, you know, I came up here thinking that I knew these issues and knew how to do this and that really well. And it would just happen. I've wanted to come to DC my whole life. It'd just be easy. For those two, almost three months, I, I was challenged to one internally, I debated myself, like, do I belong here? Can I actually do this? I was just rejected, you know, and I didn't expect that to ever happen here. And so that to me was a moment where I had to like, dig deep a little bit, I had to sell my car to make rent. Um, and, and, and so there, there were moments where I just had to think if this was really for me there, were, you know, I was probably a month or two if I didn't get a job having to move back to Florida. And so I, something I learned from my mom that has stuck with me is a level of, uh, in keeping a degree of optimism. And so, you know, every moment doesn't work out well and every incident will be, won't be easy as long as you're willing to work hard and you're willing to stay hopeful and you're willing to do the right thing, good things will happen. And so I, I've kind of stuck by that. And, and, and that's that level of optimism and that degree of hope have, have helped fuel me and, and my uh, future. Yeah. So I think something that I ran into as a co-op and as an intern in general is I would get stuck on something and I wouldn't ask for help just because, oh, well, I could figure it out if I just did a little bit more. Maybe I tried this or this. And I don't really have any experiences to bring up where I really let somebody down. But it's more of, I could have gone a lot further if I had just asked for help, you know? 
and said, hey, can I get a second set of eyes? Can somebody teach me this? It's a very normal fit in engineering, especially with people who haven't even graduated yet, right? And there should be no shame or self-doubt for doing that. That's a really good question. I've never been fired from a job, but I don't think there is a more difficult industry than the entertainment industry. It's super cutthroat and there are so many people wanting the same job and opportunity that I think you have to just do whatever it takes. And when I was there, I do remember feeling overwhelmed because at ET, they want you there. And I was lucky to get this job. I mean, I originally started interning. I think it was, I think I had to be there around eight, but my supervisor was so happy for me. He invited me to join the actual team for their brainstorming and writing sessions every morning. Well, those start at 4.30. I didn't live in LA. I lived in Orange County. Is that 4.30 a.m.? Yeah. Oh my God. That's when these people get there because the show has to be ready to air when it airs. So when I did that, I remember feeling very tired because you're waking up at, you know, three to get ready and then drive over there. And then once you're there, it's nonstop all day and you're not getting paid. So it's not motivating all the time. But I just remember thinking that I'm here to get the best experience I can get. And hopefully I will make good contacts to put me at the next stage of my life. I've always kind of thought, what can I do today that will get me to where I need to be tomorrow? So I just think I know it's overwhelming, but you just have to think that you're lucky to get these opportunities. There are a lot of people in other countries where they'll never get the opportunity to even go to school. So if you have the chance to go to school and get a job, put your best foot forward. Some of these moments stand out quite clearly as I'm sure they do for many people in their career. And there's a certain through line for me of some of the moments I've had that have felt particularly challenging and challenging at a personal level as opposed to just a professional level. So I've had a couple of instances in which I either identified an opportunity for a publication or I supported writing a paper or I helped bring a speaker to our organization that ultimately I didn't end up getting sort of credit for it or wasn't listed as an author on certain papers that I've written or was considered a ghostwriter for something when I actually knew I was the one who did the work and had expected to be recognized for that. And it's something I really struggle with at a really personal level to understand when it's appropriate and necessary to advocate for myself in those situations and when it's just the norm, right? And I think it's also really challenging to disentangle some of the gender and age dynamics there of saying, you know, am I being passed over for this opportunity because I'm young or because I'm a woman? Or do I need to be more direct or more vocal in advocating for my representation in this? And I think that those stand out as some of the most challenging moments in my career because they didn't feel like they just impacted my professional life. They really felt like they impacted my identity and really challenged the ways that I operate and the ways that I work. And so those are some of the moments that I can think back on as being really challenging and feeling like I had to make hard decisions around whether to go and sort of risk some of my social capital to go to higher ups in my organizations to really advocate for myself. And those were hard decisions and moments that I definitely look back on and will always wonder sometimes whether or not I made the right decisions in different scenarios, but I'm still learning as I go and and hoping to help others as well in the industry as I have opportunities for publication or speaking, etc. Was there any backlash that you experienced by going to your supervisor? It's really been situation dependent. I mean, I've had incredible fortune to have great managers and supervisors throughout my career thus far. And I must say that 
the willingness of some of my managers to really help pull me up with them as they had opportunities is something that I will forever be indebted to them. And I have specific coworkers I can name who have offered me co-publication opportunities or to whom I've applied to be do speaking opportunities with. Even if we didn't end up getting those speaking opportunities, it was the vote of confidence they demonstrated that was really critical. But I will say I've also had opportunities where I did not succeed. There are papers out there on which my name isn't on it that I know I wrote. And that is hard. And I can't say I ever received any blowback, but sometimes I wasn't successful, right, in advocating for what I wanted. And that's just a learning experience that I'll take with me. And it does help to inform who are the people you can look to to help pull you up and who are the people that you know maybe you need to be a little more direct with as far as advocating for yourself and for those around you as well. I would say that I'm so likely to experience many of these types of experiences throughout my career. And obviously, I'm very early. And so I'm going to I'm going to highlight an example for you that is in my current role. I had one project, the call center project, actually, where I was excelling, I was exceeding expectations, I was really loving my manager and having such a fabulous experience that I think I got a little too comfortable. So when I transitioned managers to a new project, I think that I wasn't trying as hard to be ahead and take that next step and try to drive my development forward and drive the project forward beyond what was expected of me. And what happened was I had finished all of the work that I was asked to do. And instead of asking for more work or being proactive about what I could be doing before my manager asked me for anything, I had a friend who was asking to review her resume. And I was sitting in the team room working on her resume and my manager noticed. And in my next feedback review, she mentioned, Hey, you know, I saw you were working on this. That's inappropriate. And like, you really should be focusing on work. And at that moment, I realized that I had kind of screwed up and I had been so comfortable and thought that my reputation with my other manager had preceded me. When in reality, I had to prove myself with this new manager all over again. And then I couldn't get comfortable with where I was. I have to constantly be seeking that next opportunity trying to be proactive in my work. And after her feedback and after that realization that I had screwed up, I really wanted to make it right and internalize her feedback and make it really clear that I was trying. And so I really made an effort in the next couple of weeks to be proactive and to do more than was expected of me. And she definitely noticed. And it's funny because she and I are now such good friends, both professionally and personally. I really, really enjoy her as a person. And we talk about it now. And we always joke that, you know, when we first started, she was really worried about working with me because of this event. But because of my perseverance and my willingness to change my ways and to take that feedback and act upon it, I really changed her opinion of me. And we are now two individuals, a manager and analyst who would love to work together again, which I think is the most positive outcome of something like that, that I would hope for. I mean, I think the 2016, the transition of administrations currently that we're going through in the United States was a really difficult time for me professionally and civil society in America writ large. I think that, you know, my whole professional career really was the Obama administration, which was an administration that was very favorable to civil society input. I got to go to the National Security Council. I could email someone from the State Department, ask for coffee, and they would say yes. And they would hear me out and listen to my opinions. It was in terms of access to government for American civil 
civil society, we had very high levels of access. And now we're in a government, you know, working with the administration, the Trump administration, who is much less interested in collective civil society input into policy. It's a much more insular government. They're, you know, making decisions behind closed doors with the sort of civil society organizations that they like, but they are not interested in talking to a hearing from civil society that they don't like. And so when the election happened, I think the biggest challenge was strategy. Like, okay, so in any transition of government, you have to start over in terms of who's in our Rolodex, who do we know, who are the stakeholders. You have to constantly be doing this mapping that we talked about earlier. But right now we're in a very unique moment, I think, in U.S. history where it's not just a conversation about what's the right policy. It's a conversation about what's the principle first. Do we have access to the people who are making policies? And if you haven't agreed on principle and access, then your policy solution doesn't matter. And I'm someone that loves policy solutions, but the principles of civil society oversight and power, I just sort of, I assumed we had already, (laughs) America had moved on and that all of these things were givens. So I think advocates in civil society across the country right now are having to go back to the drawing board of like, did we just totally mistake the sort of progress towards a transparent government that we thought we had made in the last 20 years? I don't think we have any answers right now, no matter what issue you work on. Mm. We're all struggling with these principles of how to advocate an increasingly closed country. So, yeah, it's a really tough time for civil society activism right now. Yeah. During my time when in Mississippi while I was teaching, um, it was already a very hard experience. Um, but then I also was in a really bad car accident um, and had some things going on in my personal life back home that it just I <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to make it from day to day because not only did I need to, you know, just con- you know take care of myself. But every day I had somewhere between 28 and 32, you know, seven and eight year olds walking in who needed me, who had even bigger problems going on in their lives. And so it was really mentally and physically, because I was still injured from my car accident, um, draining to know that not only did kids need me, there wasn't really anyone there that you know, could be there for me that I needed because I had moved to a whole new state. I didn't know anyone in Mississippi when I moved there. You know, I'm originally from upstate New York. So that's, you know, pretty much across the country. Um, And so, you know, socially it was difficult. Mentally it was difficult. Physically it was difficult. And so I just, I knew I needed to make it through. I just, I could not quit on my kids. Um, Even though even my parents were saying like, so, you know, you, what what does your contract look like? Couldn't you uh, maybe leave? And, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so um, it was, it was that bad that even my parents were asking me to quit. Um, And so I tried everything. Um, I started going to counseling again, um, which I firmly firmly believe that for everyone's socio-emotional health, you, everyone needs a good counselor. (laughs) I second that. Um, No matter what is going on in your life, if you think it is perfect, you still could use a great counselor. (laughs) And so I got a counselor. I started going to church. I try, you know, tried hanging out with different friends. I tried a lot of things, um, exercise and whatnot, but basically I realized that I'd kind of lost myself in trying to be this perfect teacher. Um, and needed to really refine myself. And I don't think that that happened for about two to two and a half years after I left the classroom. I picked up and moved to Dallas without uh, actually having an official job and just because it felt right. And my dad, you know, he knew I couldn't stay in Mississippi. I even had one doctor tell me, Miss, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think you just need to leave this state. 
it's been real hard on you. <laughs> um, so um, I, I just picked up and moved to Dallas because it felt right. And that's not the type of thing that I normally do. But I just did it because I, my heart said it made sense. And I came here and I, I just tried to start over. You know, I, I got back to, to working out the best that I could. Um, I started, you know, having actually social time in my life again, you know, immediately I started by getting a job in DISD, my salary almost doubled from what I was making in Mississippi just by way of um, price of living. And so, so some of that was, you know, I was beyond, besides the, the the low pay, I was also in debt from my car accident. So I was basically living in poverty throughout all of this as well, oh, which I had just God. graduated from Harvard vowing I would never go back into poverty. So it was very, there was a lot of kind of PTSD around, you know, actual you know, diagnosed PTSD from this, from the car accident, but also from, you know, what am I doing? I just graduated from Harvard and now I'm back in, you know, this, this rural place dealing with all the same problems I grew up with. And so there was a lot of what I called crisis of conscience. Um, but it just took, you know, getting to Dallas and, and finding my confidence again, my confidence was just shot. My principal hated me and would constantly tell me that my handwriting was too bad, so I couldn't be a teacher, um, things like that. And so I just, I was broken um, and I needed to allow myself the time to heal. And I I didn't realize that until, again, I got another really good therapist, Um, but also just taking time for myself and starting to remember, oh, right, you really love doing, you know, that painting. Oh, right, you really love brunch. <laughs> and just getting getting into a, um, a space where I could re rediscover myself um, and heal. So I don't know if that really answers your your oh, question, but I I can just say I'm so my life. It, it felt like I was living in black and white during those years, and I promise all of your listeners there is color on the other side. <laughs> you just have to make it through sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that, Marie. That really sounds like it was the depths of despair, the depths of, <laughs> but how strong you are that you stuck it out and you healed yourself. Yeah, which I would just say, like, the healing yourself is is the biggest piece, is no one's going to heal you for you. How many boyfriends did I try to have that I thought was going to fix my heart, too, right? Like, that's, <laughs> you have to fix yourself. Your job is not going to fix you. Your your parents aren't going to fix you. Like, it's not your friend's job, either. Like, it has to start with you deciding to get healthy. And sometimes healthy does not mean, you know, you're not recovering from a heroin addiction. Sometimes healthy is recovering from a work addiction, where you think you need to work every minute of every day. Um, and so taking a step back and figuring out what you need to do to help yourself is the first step. So if it's in the middle of the summer and everybody's busy going on vacations, coming from vacations, going to events, and meanwhile, you are at home doing your tagging and adding pixels to websites and building out your landing page and trying to put the video on the opt-in page and hoping that the wording on your ad converts individuals to take a response. And you've been working on this for a couple hours and you're 80% done. And it's been a few weeks where you haven't heard from somebody, not as many inquiries are coming in as during the non-summer months, that's when you need to remind yourself that 
the diligence you're putting in now can reward you in the future, that you're planting seeds and you're going to reap a harvest later on. Don't get discouraged when the seed is in the ground growing because you have to remember it's going to come out a tall, victorious plant at the end. So I would say keep working and commit yourself to the word daily because if you're going to do something, you got to do it every day. I'd say it's when I was hosting the Content Marketing Success Summit, all the prep work that led up to that summit and a few things happening in the background that really had a toll on me. So like just being able to not just organize my first virtual summit, but to get through all the background stuff. So I'd say like when you are pursuing this big project, but you have some kind of energy drain for some reason, it just really comes back to tapping into your why. And for me, that was to provide value to my audience. And the moment I focused more or my audience and less about the things that I was going through, it was easier for me to do all the work to make the Content Marketing Success Summit a great event for all of the attendees. So I think in general, you are going to make mistakes. There will be times that you beat yourself up as a professional. And something I have learned is that there is no amount of proofreading or checking your list twice that will mitigate for mistakes. They just happen. And some are worse than others. I think one time I can think about in particular that was tough for me is this was a moment, but it it sort of left a, a feeling. There was a time that a colleague called me on the phone and wanting to talk about an issue that was quite serious. And I was not prepared for the call. And what I should have done in that moment is say, hey, listen, I'm actually not prepared to talk about this right now. I'm I'm sort of in the middle of doing a number of different things. But I really want to talk to you about this. This is a really important issue. Can we talk tomorrow in person or later today in person? I should have I should have not tried to push through the conversation knowing that I didn't have all the right resources. And instead, I pushed through. And I think what happened was it was more confusing than it needed to be. And I'm not sure that that person felt totally heard or totally great about the conversation afterwards. And my goal when I talk to anybody is to make sure that they do feel heard and that we're helping that I'm helping them come up with solutions or ways to move forward that are productive. And this one, I knew that I wasn't in the right sort of mind space. I think I was running to another meeting. I knew I wasn't in the right mind space to have this phone call. But instead of recognizing that and owning that, I tried to just fix it. And when I got off the phone, you know, I was uncomfortable. And, and it stayed with me for a couple of days, just knowing that I should have done differently, or that person wasn't didn't feel quite heard or, or quite as if I had given them the attention they deserved. And, and so I addressed it. I went to that person and said, Hey, listen, just want you to know, I think I should have done this. I wasn't in the right space. Can we talk about it again? And they were incredibly gracious and, and wonderful and said, yeah, of course, you know, that was weird for me too. And this was serious for me. And I wasn't, you know, so we, we ended up talking through it. I think the, the most important thing when it comes to any rough patch or mistake, or even just a feeling off is that you own it. There's got to be times when you don't feel great. There's going to stuff that happens in your personal life or stuff that happens at work that just it just affects things. And I think if you own it and you, to the best of your ability, can communicate about it and just let the people around you know, like, yeah, I, I feel weird about this. Like, I'd love to talk about it. Or I just generally I feel weird about this. I'm, I'm in a I'm in a funk. That usually helps me. I think everybody can understand and relate to having a tough time or making a mistake everybody has done it. And so the more that you can be honest and open about it and vulnerable about it, I think the better off you'll be. Before I actually started my YouTube channel, I actually started another one 
before that. And then before that one, I actually started another one. And then before that one, I actually started another one. Overall, I've actually had like six or seven YouTube channels. And the reason why I had to keep doing them was because I got hacked a couple of times. And some other times I would enable Google AdSense and the whole YouTube partnership thing when you, to make money. That was like this thing that wasn't even made yet. And it was totally screwed up. I had to keep on resetting my account for that reason. But basically, I literally had to restart to redo my YouTube channel like six times. Before I started that successful Minecraft server, I actually started another Minecraft server before that, like a month prior that made zero dollars and had, I think, five people join in total. So looking back at that, I've just been failing my way to success. They open your way. They open the gateway for more things. And ultimately, if you're sort of stuck in the neurotic prison of fearing failure in your mind, that to me is just the definition of that's an excuse for not actually living your life. And I think there's a lot of deeper things at play then. Maybe you're listening to the wrong sorts of people. But yeah, I completely agree. I want to <laughs> say a thousand percent, Mark, we need to change the definition of failure, the way that we view failure. Failure actually means you've pushed yourself outside your comfort zone and you're learning. It is another mm. way of learning and in your lingo, leveling up to that next exciting adventure. And I also want to just clarify something because when I said failure is a gateway to future success, I don't define success and I don't want our listeners to define success by anyone else's definition but their own. It may be financial. It may be a level of freedom that they have to do the kind of extracurricular activities that they enjoy, whatever it is, but to live your life the way you want to live it, not by anyone else's definition. Yeah. And ultimately, I think that is the the ultimate regret. And something that I heard that really pushed me into the action was this quote from Steve Jobs. And he says, he thinks that death is the best invention of life. And it's to get you to realize that you actually don't have anything to lose. We're already naked. We're all going to die. It's going to kill you either way. So you might as well do whatever it is you want. And honestly, like I didn't get this growing up as a kid, even though this is what I was dictated by. I've learned a lot of us are solely governed by the opinions of what we think other people think about us. And if you combine that quote from Steve Jobs, you actually begin to think like, wait, so I'm not living my life based on a bunch of electricity firing thoughts from another person's brain, like from their whatever it is, like their neurons through like their myelin sheath, whatever it is, that's actually what's stopping you from living your life. And at the end of the day, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to regret the things you did. You're going to regret the things that you didn't do, the people that you didn't meet, the things that you didn't experience. And ultimately, that is sort of my ultimate fear. And it's like that fear of fear, that's the thing that motivates me. So I love that. So I'll be pretty candid here. And I actually don't think I've ever shared this as widely. So great platform to do so. But I did not get a return offer to JP Morgan at the end of my summer. And to give you context, I was working in the asset management group. And I had mentioned to the recruiter that, you know, I, I didn't know the asset management was the right fit for me. But I was always kind of banking on having the return at least as an option to kind of be, you know, in my consideration for working after my junior summer, you know, 
And I left that summer thinking it was great, made a lot of really awesome relationships and honestly took my job security for granted. And I got a phone call a couple of weeks later sharing that after I had interviewed at another part of the bank that I unfortunately wasn't going to be like included in those individuals who got offers to come back for the following summer. And it was the biggest blow to my confidence or like self-esteem in a while. And that experience, I think, very much humbled me. It made me incredibly grateful for any job because all of a sudden I went from nearly complete job security going into my junior year where internships are super highly sought after to literally back at square one where I could have been spending that time studying up for interviews. So I took away from that an incredible sense of gratitude for my jobs, which I will never be taking a job for granted after that experience. And it also kind of, for lack of a better metaphor, lit a fire under my pants a little bit that I still don't think has uh, left, where always be moving, always be thinking about what's next, how to do better, how to be better at your job, be irreplaceable so that I'm not in that position again. So that was, uh, that, was that big failure. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712.